This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Very lucky to be joined on CFB today by Graham Jones, who is the head of performance at the Scottish Football Association. Very lucky for CFB to get a guest such as Graham because you find in football that there are lots of people behind the scenes who fans maybe aren't aware of, but they do incredibly important jobs. And, and Graham is, is definitely one of those people. First of all, Graham, thanks for joining me. Oh, my pleasure, Cal. Nice to be on. The first question I've got for you, the role of, of, of Head of Performance at the SFA, very simple, simplistic question to start. What does the role look like on a day-to-day basis and what are the key responsibilities that are within your remit? Okay, so it's very vast. I mean, because it's a national governing body, it's, it's a really big role. The main parts of it is to do with the national teams, um, particularly for me, the men's A and the women's A and then 21s and downwards from there. But we've also got Club Academy Scotland, um, we've got the performance schools, and we've got lots of different areas within these parts. So my role is very vast. It's mainly to look after the elements of support for sports science, sports medicine, and performance analysis. So all the more modern-y sort of... um, concepts that are within the game is to make sure that these are being practiced in the right manner across all the different areas but more specifically on the key responsibilities of my role it does sit within the men's and women's national teams and particularly the the men's a and the women's a and i suppose the first real responsibility is to make sure that the coaches and the players have everything that they need at their disposal in order for them to perform to the maximum of their ability. So because we're a national setup, we don't own any of our own players like a club does. So we're, in essence, borrowing the players uh, for international duty um, from the clubs. And what we need to do is we need to make sure that they replicate for performance support, which is the science medicine analysis part, that they have everything that they need, coaches and players together. So there's nothing that's unavailable or nothing that can affect their um, performance. So we put a lot of investment and time and effort in to make sure these principles exist. I suppose the second thing that goes hand in hand, and it's not a, it's not a chronological order of importance, but it's second hand in hand, is to maintain really strong relationships with the clubs. So there is a huge amount of information about the players, um, information in relation to medical information, um, personal information, or within a more data element with sports science and numbers and figures and outputs for physicality and things. So we have to maintain strong relationships so we understand fully the nature of what players are coming on camp with us and what they're going to be doing and, 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 and how best to do it and what they need again to meet their, their needs. And the final sort of key responsibility for my role is to ensure that we are, it's a really common term and you all have heard it, but you know, conducting best practice. So we are doing exactly as all the top 
um, industries and sport are, are doing all the different, it's not just football, it's every different area uh, within the sporting context that we are conducting our performance element, our high performance element to the maximum of our capabilities that's in line with best practice. So we're not lagging behind, we're not following that we are actually at the forefront. And, and those all work hand in hand. And, and as I say, the, the element of the, um, the international teams and then across the other parts as well comes into it. But that's the, that's the key responsibilities for me. You mentioned in particular the, the, the A team, the, the main national side of the, the men's side, the women's side, is the real crux of the role in terms of where all, I suppose as well for you, where most attention is, is given to, not only from yourself, but also from, from the media and the spotlight that gets placed on both those sides as well. How exactly do you work in unison with those teams when, for instance, the one of those national teams go away? Do you go away with them? Do you Are you involved on the training field in regards to the fitness element of it as well? Well, it's, pr- it's probably three different aspects to it, and it's, they're very much replicated now. Previously, um, prior to the Women's World Cup and during the Women's World Cup, it was a slightly different model for the women's team. But now we have integrated the same model for both teams. So what you see on the men's is what you get on the women's side as well. Um, it's easiest to explain, to separate into three areas. So it's pre-camp, during camp, and post-camp. Um, and those are the those are the key parts of what I do now. I'm in, involved heavily, and my staff are involved heavily with pre-camp, in-camp, and post-camp. So I do travel with both teams, um, and I'll, I'll explain sort of what I do when I'm away. But the pre-camp element's really about um, first off harnessing a really really strong relationship with the coach. So um, when a head, new head coach comes in, it's all about you know, what, how I build the relationship and how we build the relationship with the coach and understand what his or her philosophies are, the way they want to play the game, the way that they're going to, that they need their players to play and the, the, the demands that are going to be placed on the, on the players. And then from that, the key part for me is to actually interpret, okay, how do we put that into practice for our own players? So, Here's are all the, you know, we've got 40 players that we're potentially going to select from. This is what the coach is wanting to do, and this is how they're going to, going to want to want to do it. What are the, the limitations? What are the, you know, challenges? What's the opportunities that we have at our disposal to in order to enable that to happen? So that's when we pre-camp, we start that fact-finding mission that happened well in advance, months, weeks and months in advance. You know, for sports science perspective, it's it's the data element. You know, you see all these different things and, you know, you watch football now and you've got these amazing physical numbers on on uh, on TV that really it started in the 90s with, you know, football manager, championship manager and games like that and in FIFA and all these numbers appearing. So it, it quantified what people were seeing. It was putting a number next to what you were seeing. Everyone bought into that and then, of course, sports science, you know, added the element of understanding the workings of the human body to actually taking the information that we get from the scientific element and applying it to practice. So what we do is we take it from the clubs, we work with them again, it's, I'll just keep using this word and it'll get boring, but those relationships with the clubs, with their key staff, and those key workers in, within the clubs to understand what's coming and going about their players, we take that scientific information and we build it into our understanding of what what this player is, where they are at, 
what they can do, what they can't do on a camp, what they'll manage to do. Um, and then you add in the, the sports medicine element, so pre-existing injuries or problems or issues, um, current issues, problems that are coming up over a period of time. And of course, you're going into a very, very confidential element there. So that really comes in through me and working with our head coach to understand, okay, limitations within this or, or an opportunity here or whatever it might be. Then we've obviously got the performance analysis element. So working on you know the games we've played, the games our opposition have played, breaking them down into different phases, into different outputs, and to different parts of the game, and to the way that we are going to want to communicate with the club, uh, with the players. Um, and then tying that into more psychological elements, so behaviours and things that we know of the players or that the clubs are informers of, of, of the players. If we're going into a hostile environment or a difficult situation or we're not in a good place with our own performances, it's adding that into this big moving equation for everything that goes. And then, of course, the, the human element, which is the bit that everyone always overlooks, but the human emotional element about understanding the player, how they are, what's going on in their life. So that, again, that element I have of the relationship with the, the clubs also taps into understanding of the player. Sometimes it requires... Um, phone conversations sometimes it requires me going and meeting with players while they're at the club to discuss different elements and things and it's really all bringing that together to able to support the head coach and then give them an understanding of okay this is where we're at with all this so it's not I think we're going to select these 23 players and he's playing okay and we know he's a good player and, and she can do this and she can do that and all the various it's really providing a lot of information that can inform the coach's decision. Now, it's okay that they might ignore it all. That's fine. But we have the capacity to understand all these different elements, and it's not one way to do it. So there's not a template about how it is. You know, if one coach wants to play a high-pressing game or fullbacks far forward or sitting back or whatever part of the game they want to play, then it's up to me and my, my staff and my team to be able to interpret that and work out from all the information that's coming in to provide a clear picture, okay, this is where we're at and these are the players that are unavailable. And then as we lead into camp and we select the team, sometimes things are taken out of our hands. We lose important players. You know, the amount of stories I've got of the day about to name a squad and we've lost players at the 11th hour. Chaos assembles, you know, and the managers, the coach is not happy and I'm not happy and the players are not happy, you know, and all these different things and all these the different levels of emotion and um, name the squad then we've got all of this information we pack it into hopefully what is an understandable package that can be delivered to the players to the coaches to everyone that needs it in preparation for the games we're in at camp then my role in camp is really it's not so much on the pitch it's more management of everything that's going on so we have performance analysts that are recording all the footage and tagging all the games We've got data scientists that are working out all the information on camp to make sure that the levels of tolerance are within what the players are used to so we're not overloading too much or we're not underloading too much or, you know, the, the balance within the medical guys that they're happy with injuries that come on because you've always got players that are injured and got kind of niggles. So I'm really the one that's actually removed from it at that point that's managing this this continuing sort of scale of um, you know too much too little and, and all the different parts and working with the head coach and that's really what it is it's the, it comes the one-on-one point of contact with the head coach 
to facilitate all this information so it doesn't confuse the clarity of what the coach wants and then be able to you know help the coach realize we're 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 you know we're needing a wee bit more here or we need to do more or less with this player or this player's not responding to this or emotionally a little bit concerned about this player and whatever it might be and that that'll all add into going into the selection part of the game which is select the team go out on the game ensure that everything's in place that they need so they're not affected and again it's really easy to talk about but it's really hard to do and a lot of performances that aren't great some of these small margins drop down and then from that hopefully good performance good result good result always hides a bad performance and then um, we come after, after it we come out of camp and it's all about the relationship with the player and the, the, the clubs at that point to ensure that the the handover to them is everything we can make it. So the player goes back to the club happy, may be injured, but the information that transfers over is in line with everything that is best practice and that is, is, is in line with what's to be expected. So the, the club are not at a loss because of anything that we've done or any misunderstanding of information and about the player or whatever it might be. And you have that for 23 or 25 players or whatever it'll be for every squad. And then that post-camp part lasts for two, three, four days. And then you start again on the next one. So, I mean, I don't know if that was too much, but that, that in a nutshell is what my roles are within the, within the national teams for the, particularly the men's A and the women's A. And as I say, I travel with both of them in my head of performance roles. So. No, absolutely spot on. And, and, and the, the detail is, is, is very, very useful. So thank you very much. And one of the questions I actually wanted to ask you, and again, I'm not asking you to name names here in terms of players that, that, that work in the national setup or have done in the past, but I imagine that you read about stories at club level where there's a particular player, maybe because of injury history um, or maybe because of age and, and, and slowing down a wee bit, that an individual player may have a, an individual programme tailored for them to get the most out of them. Is that something that can be commonplace even international level as well, that a club can say to you, look, this is what we do with the player. Can you please ensure that this is put into place while he's away with you as well? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's standard practice. So we have 20, 25 players, say, that, that come away with us and 25 of them have their own way in which they normally prepare and from that 25 we, we usually have at least I would say a dozen specific requests coming in about the players about their needs at that point in time now it might be an acute problem that they are managing that means they're fit enough to meet up but they need managed so they can't necessarily train every day or they can't train in a specific type of way during that period but in order to manage that in the short term it will lead into them being able to play we we have requests like that all the time and that's all about the, the piecing together this really complicated jigsaw of all the different pieces of information and like all places of work it comes down to the communication once we've got that information it comes down to the communication and the relationship that's in place so it's the communication between um, the medical staff and me or the science staff and me and also the players involvement and with that as well the players involvement with all of this is always really important because they have to be understanding of what's going on. They don't like not knowing. Don't know what it was like 30 years ago, but nowadays the players are really, really attuned to what they want and need. Then it's about my relationship with the coaches and specifically the head coach to relay this information. The sooner we have the information, the better, because coaches don't like these things sprung on them like anybody. Nobody likes that. 
So relaying these specific requests or for um, what needs to be done to the coach. And as I say, it doesn't happen right away. It, it takes time for any new head coach to come in to understand the difference between club football or international football, and particularly with the older players, like you're saying, we have a lot of requests for what you'd say is load management or specific needs for this player while they're on camp. Now, this will cause a bit of chaos in terms of the head coach's planning, but over time, they appreciate that that's just how it is because at the end of the day, what we want is to maximise the exposure of that, you know, that, that we amplifier to 100%. So this player has the potential to be at 100%, and that very rarely happens. But to, to create the opportunity for that to happen, then there's a lot of give and take. And the player's involvement in, is, is very important as well because the vast majority are very honest and they'll say, I, I don't think I can do this today. I says, I'm still struggling with this or whatever. And then it's that relationship. And unfortunately for coaches in international football, they can plan every session well in advance. They can do whatever, plan out the perfect week. And the minute that you get on camp, it's up in the air because of that. The sessions are up in the air because they lose two or three or four or five players and sometimes early in the week. And this is the one of the most difficult things is that we don't have a set calendar for how it is. So sometimes we have Thursday games, sometimes Friday, sometimes Saturday, and then the corresponding three days after. It creates a lot of, of uh, challenges for the, for the coaches. But again, this performance support element of what my role is, is there to you know, ease this difficulty for the coaches. And so we take this information about the different things and the specific requests. And 99% of the time, they're reasonable and they're completely in line with what we need. And then it's applying that, amending what we do, and then building back up to the game. And as I say, it's, 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 it's not, there's not one way to do it. It changes all the time. Every camp's different. But it starts with that relationship between club and country, relationship between ourselves and player and the player's club staff then ourselves and our staff and player on camp and then finishes off with that relationship that I'm continually harnessing with the head coach to create that trust and respect and you know I, I don't know anything about football really or the tactical elements but I'm taking that appreciation of the workings of the individual of the human to add into what they do and just to say it doesn't always work but the majority of the time we get there in the end and I'd, I'd say it's a pretty successful model for what we have up here. You mentioned the fact that successful model, that the amount of preparation that goes into your role and the role of the national setup as a whole is there to see because, as you said, adaptability is crucial to the role of not only the head coach, but everyone dripping and dropping down from there because of the circumstances. You never know which players are going to be available or not because, such as football, we can't guarantee everyone's going to be fit all the time, which is unfortunate. I no. don't want to dwell on the past in this show for a, for a long period because that would be unfair to do so. However, I do want to address um, the situation over in Kazakhstan because from your point of view, Graham, I actually felt that, I actually felt some, some real sympathy for you in the sense that you were put into the, the, the limelight of the press very, very quickly. And as well, you know the circumstances with press um, they, they're, they're doing their best job, but they don't maybe have an hour to give you an extended period of time to talk exactly what happened in the, the inner workings. So now that we've got a wee bit of an extended period of time here on this show, what was the preparation like in Kazakhstan and, and what was learned from it? Because as I say, we've all heard the three and four minute clips, but I think it'd be nice if you could go into depth about what the plan was there. 
No, you've, you've summed it up well. As you've already experienced, I like to talk a lot and uh, like the sound of my own voice, unfortunately. But yeah, I mean, the, the Kazakhstan experience was a massive learning experience for me in relation to media because I think that we all believe, or maybe not everybody, but everyone believes they're going to be pretty good at everything or they, they should be okay and they, 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 you know, they have a, uh, a confidence that's maybe misplaced or an ignorance as it was in my situation to think, oh, I'll be all right, I'll be good. I can talk about science and so on and, and just fundamentally failed at it. But, you know, the more I learn in life, the more I fail the first time I do something. That's just characteristic of me. But the Kazakhstan thing was, was um, you know, it was in a way, I, I call it to, to my members of staff when we, when we did a, we did a massive review on it and we looked into everything that went wrong and, pointed, you know, I pointed the finger at me a lot, and that was quite rightly so in some some senses of, of what happened in media, but the Kazakhstan was, re was really a, a perfect storm, that's how I describe it, because it was the one camp that, in terms of the preparation from a performance support element, everything was right on it. So it, it started months in advance, and we got the draw. We'd obviously finished the, the Nations League campaign uh, with a win, against uh, Israel, we won 3-2, really good feel-good feeling, uh, feel-good factor, sorry, was there. We went into um, the new year and the preparation started literally the, the, the minute that we came back and it's decided within the sort of board level that we wanted to invest as much time and effort into this to do it right. So Kazakhstan was nine hour, nine hour flight away to Astana or Nur Sultan, changed name when we were there, the day we were there it changed, it was just, you know, bizarre, but nine hour flight, six time zones, anyone that's traveled time zones, you know, that has a massive effect. So the process for my area became, came right at the start. And one of the things, one of the strengths I would like to think that I've probably got is, is not fear of asking lots of people about what the right way to do things. So we were, so like, like the year before when we went to Peru, um, Consulting with lots of different experts, and Peru would consult with people from Denver Broncos because they work with an altitude uh, from a guy in New York City that does a lot of travel and all these different things. So that for Kazakhstan, it was the same thing. We spoke to people in Formula One because of the amount of travel that they do across the board. We spoke to people in, um, in rugby in New Zealand because of the amount of travel that they have to do. So utilized the connections around the world to work out what needs to be done. And, it genuinely wasn't rocket science. And I think that that was maybe one of the things that, you know, my ignorance and uh, naivety um, when asked to do it was uh, that I, I thought, you know, it's so simple, it's, it's actually brilliant. But everyone else thought, well, of course, but nine hour flights, uh, nine hours away, uh, sorry, nine hour flight in six time zones creates a lot of issues. Then you add in, it was the middle of winter, it was an indoor 3G facility. Um, it was a Thursday match, um, and then you start talking up all these things, then the preparation that we put in was actually really, really excessive, and we looked into the minutiae of everything. So, like, you know, there was a whole lot of stick given, it's all right, I've read everything, I'm a human, but I've read everything, you know, blackout blinds, um, and, um, you know, the investment in a really, really good plane so the players could sleep flat because of the evidence that, percentage improvement that you get from sleeping flat. We, threw, we flew through the middle of the night. Obviously the biggest bone of contention and laughter was uh, staying on UK time, but 
it all tied in because from Kazakhstan's point of view, they were playing at nine o'clock at night, but for us it was three o'clock in the afternoon. And you ask anybody the best time of day to play from our own body clocks, three o'clock in the afternoon, um, because we can control everything. So when we arrived there, we were just staying on UK time, just like doing Formula One and the rugby and all these different parts. And as I say, you know, went out there, had a funny story about, you know, they took us to see a football pitch that was outdoors and, and this was in January. It was minus 20. There was genuinely 10 feet of snow. And uh, he says, there's your pitch. And of course, so I've literally been spending 10 minutes digging. There wasn't any shovels in, So my fingers were freezing. I'm digging. I'm digging like a mole trying to get down to see. And then when you got down to the bottom of this, the two guys from the SFA that were with him and they slightly more experienced members of staff were absolutely wetting themselves in laughter at what I was doing. And I've got frostbite fingers and all of that. And got to the bottom and the pitch was completely different to what it was going to be like indoors. And so if we'd turned up and gone training there, who knows what sort of issues and problems we were going to have. We knew from the offset that we were going to be two players down because of um, the fact it was indoor in 3G. We then had, you know, all these different things that were affecting, but the preparation was great. The staff were fully aware. The information we had on the, the, the guys were great. Um, and everything lined up from my perspective. So when we got there, it was, it was hard, it was stressful, but it was good. And, and it was the, the only time in my career that, um, to date that, that I would say that everything that was planned for was lined up. We then got there, we lost our captain, you know, that, that, was, that was mental. Andy had an abscess in his tooth playing Fulham, flew up, we got him in to see um, the, the um, Max Fats guy at um, uh, the Glasgow Hospital, Queen Elizabeth Hospital, and then, uh, you know, we were going through all these different things and like, challenges and then Andy was out he didn't travel and then we weren't going to get him and then we had other issues and we just there was a lot of different things but from my perspective it was all good and then as we got into the game it was a Thursday game so we had very little time to, to I just remember thinking um, this was just a personal thing and I did the media so it was fine I always thought I was still you know I wonder if there was a logic there behind doing all this before the game because of this goes south and there's a lot of egg in my face and that's exactly what happened and I got egg all over my face um, but it was a life experience and in hindsight it's a wonderful thing and it would be easy to say now well if there's no logic in doing such a media thing beforehand because if you fail then it's going to fall flat in your face but at the end of the day in that situation you do anything you can Alex McLeish was under huge you know I love Alex McLeish as a guy he's just, just an absolute gem of a guy I would have as the staff would have done anything to try and you know give us the best opportunity so as we went in we had the, as good an opportunity from ev everything in my ears we could have done it's just unfortunate that we just didn't you know we didn't have good enough players we didn't have a good enough score whatever you want to do you know this was wrong this was wrong this was wrong i remember i was sitting on the bench and the, the, the media was really getting pictures and everything i was so uncomfortable with it. it was just oh man not not something i would want to experience again and uh, and I remember thinking, we've got six players. So between the Albanian Israel game, every player that started the Albania game that we won 4-0 um, played against Israel. And historically, if you have the same group of players that play for a period of time in international football, statistically, they will win or have a higher win percentage than anyone else. So that's, the, you know, like for like, not when you play against... Belgium and your, your bottom ranks, whatever, but like for like or in around the level. And I remember thinking, sitting on the bench, 
knee shaking, sweat rolling down the back of my thing, going, oh, no, we're in for one here, and thinking six players are missing, and it's a new back five, it's a new back line, and I thought, it's a big ask. And it wasn't till then that it really struck me, because we were preoccupied with everyone else, but we'd lost four players in the space of a week, and then the two others that, that, that had played, and Callum and Ryan, that had played in the Israel game, and I think Callum played right back, but still, we'd lost them as well. So, oh, you know, just it was a real, it was a real difficult situation. But listen, it, it was what it was, and 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 I would far prefer it happen to me than to other, because I think I'm, you know, strong enough to be able to move on from it or hope so and, and and deal with it. So that was that was part of life that that wasn't great in that time. But from what I did from my job, I was, and I was probably still be open for interpretation. But I, I was happy with everything we did, and and the the, the marker was is after everything. The game settled down and beat Samory went away. I'd received a message from every one of the players saying, bang out of the line, by the way, that was his best prep we've ever had from Scotland. And that was that was that made me feel better and that was enough to to confirm that what we'd done was was uh, was was it was in line with what was best. So Well, that's the thing. <clears throat> You've summed it up perfectly for me there in the sense that as I say, the reason I had sympathy with you at the time was it's very easy for members of the media, fans, we're all guilty of it as fans as well, to, to really, let's be honest, speak about something with conviction that we're not qualified in. And when it comes to sports science, I would never claim to, to lecture you or anyone else because I don't have the knowledge and the expertise. Whereas it's very easy when it came to, for instance, staying on the time zone, it's very easy to, to sort of try and poke fun at that because to, to dual public out there, it, it maybe does seem like a strange thing to do. But when you've got the knowledge base that you do, in your field and it makes sense, then you know what you're doing is right. And unfortunately, as I said, because of time constraints with radio programmes, television programmes, you don't get half an hour to speak like you've just done with me here at the moment to, to tell the fans exactly why you're doing that. You might get, as you've, as you've learned, five minutes to try and explain it. And you know yourself, five minutes can, can go very, very quickly. But You've it's learned no good, from no good for me. I, I like to speak as you're as you're getting. It definitely wasn't enough for me. Although the <laughs> thing is, I don't think an hour would have would have would have done the job either. To be honest, sometimes you're just uh, you need to be the sacrificial lamb. But it's it's it's, it's it is what it is. I mean, I, I'm as I say, I, ju- I just I just I was so confident in everything I'd done. So I had enough courage to be able to stand by my decisions. So that was that was. Somebody will talk about that, but that takes a lot of courage when you're coming under a bit of fire to be able to stand up and still say, well, I'm right, and unfortunately you're not going to agree with me, so you can just think I'm a bit of an idiot, but it's it's just the nature of football, and um, as I've, I've, I've been, I've started it right at the bottom, working at lower-level clubs as a uh, entry-level sports scientist, and I've worked up to, you know, as a higher level, and, and you get exposed to this, and you get asked to come on uh, podcasts and things, and that's cool. And and you just have to have, um, you have to just stand by your conviction and, and your your knowledge and your understanding of things. And you're always going to get criticised anyway. I mean, I've been as you 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 have been, you know, in your day to day job and things. You get criticised, and you just have to come back from that. You definitely become out stronger from it. But the period going through that is is uh, is challenging. And I, I mean, I was it was a humiliation and. and go, you know, and on social media and all the various, it was completely humiliating. But again, what are you going to do? I was getting to do a job I love in the area that I'm passionate about, that I think that I'm so lucky to be doing. Um, and so 
I'll stand up for for what I know is right, and 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 I'll take the consequences as they come as well. So you kind of that's that's how my outlook on it was, and it's just again, it's it's in history now, but it's something that I've grown stronger from. I hope, and and you know, we go from there. Absolutely, and the national team under Steve Clark now, different manager, um, progressing, got the chance to go to. To Euro 2020, although it'll be in 2021 as we know, um, if everything goes to plan. But I want to talk to you about another aspect of your role now. I know it's slightly changed in recent years um, because of the way remits work in any organisation, but you used to work with the referees in the country. What was it like working with the officials compared to the players? Totally different. Um, uh, very enjoyable. The head of referee, and he sadly passed away last year, John Flowen, was a really good friend and very, very good boss to lead the, the referee. And they've got Crawford in now, who's been an ex-referee, who I'm sure will do well. But I really enjoyed it because the element of um, the national teams tends to be quite pressurised and focused and intense, which is great. It's a bit addictive and, and enjoyable and it's, it's happiness and it's sadness and in all the various Kazakhstan last year, all these different parts. The referee was very, the refereeing was very continuous. And I would say that I've probably made closer friends within refereeing than I have within the national teams because you're dealing with people that are, that's not a profession. So guys that have really high pressure jobs and different jobs that have to combine their jobs with what they do with family life, with training as, as hard and as tense as they can and preparing physically, mentally, emotionally for these games and then going out and, and, being the guy in the middle that nobody likes, I've got huge, uh, I've got huge respect for it. But they're also, you know, some really wonderful people, and I, I just love the experience. And they're very, very. You can, this, the difficult thing I always find with refereeing is when people question their professionalism or question them as individuals. And I've never always, and the referees have got to remain silent, or for the most part, I've got to remain silent. It's it's, it's so wrong because they're all really good guys. Like all things, when you bring them all together and they go into wee cliques and all the different things, that's always quite entertaining as well, you know? Little boys little boys in primary school stuff. But individually, I absolutely loved it. And I really worked working with that individual one-to-one trying to... It was more, really more athletics, which was, you know, a bit more of my background when I was coming out of uni. But it was more athletic stuff, so it was really working on the physiology and I had a lot more lab time and did lots of different... Um, lab-based assessments and physiology assessments that's not so pertinent and, and for football players because it's the on-pitch stuff but within referees you can really make a difference because there's no kicking of the ball or anything like that that has that effect so really enjoyed it did it since 2008 to I think maybe 2018 it was probably about a decade and my best friend um, John McQuaid who's the fitness coach I was a sports scientist the fitness coach I used to get every Sunday used to get to go and work with your best pal on the training pitch and work with the referees and then we used to get the winter training camp to La Manga and that was that was just getting paid to do just fun it was just so much fun to go away and train with the referees every day and all the various so it was totally different there was elements I didn't like just like any job and there was individuals you don't like just like any job but collectively it was very very enjoyable and and only look back with fond memories and as I say some really really top top people within it and we all like to cane them but it's and give them a bit of a and give them a bit of a slagging off but they they do they do love it just like me and you love football and love being a part of it and talking about it and the referees are the same 
and you just you just got to take it and go as it comes. But the, it was it was it was a really enjoyable period. Totally different, totally totally different to working with teams, um, but but good different. And I wouldn't say one was better than the other. I just think that it was it was another perk of my job. Um, and as I say, made some really close friends from it as well. One of the aspects of sports science I want to get your perspective on, I was lucky enough to, to speak to Graham Henderson recently, who works in the sports science sector. And one of the questions that I was, I was interested to get his perspective on, and same with you today, Graham, is, is the sort of red zone, we hear a lot about that, and fans hear a lot about that through um, articles or through broadcast outlets, but it's never really fully explained. And a lot of people think a sports scientist just puts a player in the red zone and says, right, you can't play for two weeks and this is why. Whereas there's far more to it than that. Could you just explain a bit about what the zones are and, and how a player gets to the red zone and what that means? It's, it's, it's trying to quantify something that's very complicated into black and white or red and green if you will. So that's your starting issue is that, oh, he's in the reds, you know, you hear somebody's in the reds or whatever. What does it mean? It's impossible to clarify. So you start off from a sports science perspective. So what are you measuring? So if, is it heart rate? Is he in his heart rate red zone? So is he in up at a maximal percentage of his heart rate above, say, 95% or something? Or is he in a red zone in terms of the amount of distance he's travelled at speed within training that's far higher than his the tolerance level or what trying to simplify um sports science into black and white or red and green or whatever way you want to see it is very very risky and well i don't practice so much as a sports scientist anymore it was always my stay away from um the fact of oh he's in the red zone you can't touch him um it's 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 it, it simplifies the process too much I think what people want here is is that it might be they are working at a level that's no longer beneficial to them and what we're trying to develop. That might be a better way to say it. Or they're working at a level that we know has a significant risk of injury from them. So it could be a muscular thing or it could be an overload thing or whatever it might be. It might, if it's heart rate related, it might be a, at a level that no longer gets that physiological benefit to the specific energy system you're trying to develop um, it could be the red zone could be accumulative so it could be based on a number of days or weeks build up and then you go past that and um, that's something that we don't terminology as red zone but we, we work with in international football so all the vast amounts of information and we know levels at which this is far higher exposure and than this player's used to and what we use a lot is load compromise this player's load compromise so they have pre-existing injury or a pre-existing problem or a, a, a history of injury recurrence by doing this sort of exercise, then we will say at a level that's more a lot more than used to. So we're starting to con consider them at risk, you know, and it's the at-risk category. So maybe red zone's better to be at risk or whatever. It's not a terminology I use. Um, it depends what it is. A lot of it's the interpretation and it comes down to the relationship and the communication between coaches. So coaches get scared about talking about or, you know, say, well, they can't do that. I need them to do that in a game. Then they need to be exposed. And they're absolutely right. So why would you limit their exposure to something that, as we all know, if you do something to a limit, then you're going to get a little bit better the next time. Why would you limit that? And then you get the scientists and the physios on the other side saying, but we know that they've got a, 
higher risk of injury into that. And then it's working out of, is that injury risk worth it to get the benefit at the other end? Or is the injury risk so high that we are going to commit this injury? And as a result, the player is going to be ruled out. Now, international football, it's a really, really basic principle because they're not our players and we don't want to cause an injury. So we feed that information in and we say, there's the limits, past the limits, we don't want to do that. And, you know, then the, the head coach, it always comes back to the head coach's decision because they're the one that's in charge of it. I'm not, I would never run into a session and say, stop, no more. If that's happened, then the lunatic's taken over the asylum, literally. So it's, it's a case of informing the coaches. A lot of the breakdown in sports science happens because they don't have the capacity to deliver that information in a way that the coach wants. So you can't, I can speak to you a certain way, but I speak to you know Steve Clark a different way, and I speak to Shelley Kerr a different way to Steve Clark, and I speak to Scott Gemmell a different way, I speak to um, Shelley Kerr, and all these different situations. So it's all about having that, and again, the emotional side of things that I, I, I think is the least talked about area because it's hard to quantify, and we like quantifying red zones, but having that emotional understanding, emotional intelligence to be able to work with different people to say, by the way, right, if we do keep doing this with this player, we know that there's going to be a possible injury risk. You know, he's got calf history or hamstring issues or, you know, lower back problems. That, that all the information that we've got from the clubs, if we continue down this path, then the effect of that is he's going to be unavailable for selection. And international level, that's, you know, in essence, should be easier to understand, but you don't always get it right, but it should be easier to apply. In club level, the pressure is constant. And it's continuous and it's your player. So the, the the adage to actually push them into that level is easier to do because international, it's not our place. We can't do that. We mustn't do that because they're not our player and the, the effects of, you know, all players are insured and the club can claim an insurance, whatever, all these different parts of the game that no one knows that, that unfortunately sit with me. But into a club environment, then the red zone becomes a debate and a point of discussion. And again, it comes down to the relationship and the communication. And people will disagree with me and have disagreed with me on this, but I really, if you can bond, make that relationship strong and make sure that trust and respect is there between the head coach and the members of staff. And sometimes you need a head of performance in that role to be able to facilitate that. I mean, that's really what the head of performances in clubs do, is they really facilitate the workings of the system to make it that confrontation, that challenge not happen then things generally work in and work out the way they should. But defining it as red zones, and it, it, it's limiting as to what it is. You have to be very, very clear about what you're talking about and what you're trying to achieve. And as I say, sometimes when people talk about red zones, and I don't know what Graham uh, said, but it's because they're not fully grasping the, the complex nature of everything's involved. And again, what you're trying to do, or what I'm trying to do is take the complexity of it and give it in a palatable format or, a, or something that can that can be understood by whoever you're dealing with. And some coaches want to know all the information and some coaches don't want to know any and some coaches want to know it specifically in a certain way and others want to know it in a written way that they can go away and read. And it's all about working out what that is. So red zones, don't get tagged onto it too much because it really, it, what's it defining? And it's, it's all about what in relation to what you're discussing and why you're, why you're stating that. And then when you break that down, then you can, as I say, inform decision-making can occur. Brilliant. And 
and as I say, that's 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 really enlightened me more into into the to the workings of it because as you've as you've rightly said there as well, when it comes to terminology, it's all about how it's used and there's always more um to a so called buzzword than than just the, the word itself as you've explained there. And I'm conscious of your time, Graham, and I want to ask you about just to finish your love of the game and yourself, where did you did were you a fan of football growing up in terms of playing the game? If so, what was your position and did you have a chance of being on the other side of the fence and, and playing the game as well? Yeah, yeah, I played. Uh, my position was sub. Um, <laughs> it wasn't very good. <laughs> Got a couple of t- t- tragic stories. I'll share one with you in a minute. But I uh, I just loved football from the get-go. I'd lived in, uh, I was a country boy down in East Lothian. Um, two older brothers who were, one was semi-decent and one was decent. Um, and I was absolutely hopeless, but just loved football. So it didn't matter that it was rubbish. Just loved it. Uh, used to go to games, uh, was a season ticket holder with my dad for many years at an unnamed Edinburgh club. Um, and, you know, that was that was the highlight of my, my week. Used to go up with my dad um, and going to the games and just nothing but amazing memories and watching football, playing football, watching football, talking about football, panini cards, um, and then championship manager. I mean, it's just engrossed me. And it was always, it was never all, it wasn't always going to be my destination for a job. I fell into it and I was so lucky to fall into it, but always, always really fancied it. Playing wise, um, lots of enthusiasm, very little ability, consistently uh, overlooked. Manager saw me for what I was, which was uh, um, just happy to be there, just happy to be involved, being part of it. Uh, don't stick them on unless you think. I think I was left, I had a left foot, so standard position if you've got a left foot and you're not very good, but don't tell Andy Roberts and Kieran Tierney this because it dismisses my claim completely, but was left back. But I didn't always get a game there, to be honest. Um, I think I realised my career was coming to an end. This is sad and I can't believe I'm sharing it, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's worth it. Uh, I was playing amateur football and it was Saturday and we were going down to a game in the borders and... Uh, turned up and the, it was a 14-seater bus, 14-seater bus it was, yeah, and the, usually the manager drove, but he couldn't because he'd been out having a couple of beers or 20 beers the night before and was a little worse for wear, and so the assistant manager was driving, and unfortunately there was 15 people there, you know where this is going, so I was one of the 15, but I was confident because you know, I'd been getting a sniffing around the game and all of this, and there was a guy literally with a metal hip. He was in his late 30s at least. He looked like he was in his late 40s. I think it was Andrew. I can't remember his name. But oh my goodness, he was, he was, he was, he couldn't run. He was just there because everyone felt sorry for him. He was a decent guy, he had better banter than me. He, not difficult. And then, you know, all these different things. And I remember thinking, I'll be okay. Big Andy's, Big Andy's going to get left. And then the manager came up, hung over, and says, hey, Johnny, another word. So this is never good. This is never good. Is it? You're, not, you're not bothered about playing the day, are you? And I thought, oh, that's it. I've just, I've just been dropped for a guy with a, the metal hip who can't run, who can't kick, that they'll probably not even put on. I thought, that's the end of my career. And that was, that was the, uh, the, the pinnacle of realising that time was to move on. I think that was about when I was about 21, 22, and I went off to play golf and squash and running and all the various. But, I mean, I just... Loved, loved being involved in football, and the fact I wasn't a player doesn't doesn't make any difference to me, and it doesn't make any difference to my job. Even though there's plenty of people that say, "Oh, if you've never played the game, you don't understand," 
I played the game lots. I just was rubbish at it. My brain couldn't get my body to do what I wanted to do or the otherwise about or whatever it was. But absolutely loved it. So lucky to be involved in it. Love sharing stories. The stories that I've seen and experiences I've had over the years is unbelievable. And, you know, some I can't share, some I can, um, and all these different things. And so lucky, and as I say, just just love it. Just absolutely love it. And, and this is, you know, absolute, absolute privilege to, to be in the position I'm in um, every day. So thankful for that. Well, I have to say, it's been a fascinating insight into... And a very important role behind the scenes, obviously, with our national team. I wish you personally and the national team every success in the future as well. The whole country is desperate to, to get to another major European final. And with Steve Clark in charge and with the group of players we've got, I definitely believe that we'll get there next year. And even if we don't get there next year, because you know what football's like, there's so many variables, I definitely think we're on the right path for the next few years to finally break the hoodoo of, of 98. And, and, I'm, and as I say, you'll be part of that. So I wish you all the best. Thank you very much, Calum. And thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be